You will notice uh, things are a little bit more kind of pared down, a little bit different this morning. Uh, we, a lot of our equipment, um, all of our staff, except for me, uh, and a lot of kind of our, our youth, our leaders are at a conference called YEC this weekend. And we're really glad that we can help in that way. Uh, but sometimes it means we have, you know, this second mic that doesn't work uh, here. So, today's just a little different. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Really glad you're here. If you're, if you're newer, just encourage you to uh, kind of do what, what Jonathan said when he was talking about the connection card. He has to fill us out or fill it out. Uh, would love to just kind of connect with you and figure out how you can get plugged into the life of the church, how we can pray for you, answer any questions you have, help you join a community group. That's a great place to do that. Um, before we dive in, I want to draw, to draw our attention to one more announcement. Uh, we have a parenting seminar coming up. Who signed up for the parenting seminar so far? A fair amount of people. Cool. Um, so it's going to be a few Sundays from now. Um, and today is the last Sunday that we can sign up. Um, I think it's actually next Saturday. The last, the last day to sign up is today. We really encourage you to do that. It's going to be a great seminar, um, not just for parents, people who want to be parents, and people who that have friends that are parents. Basically, it's a seminar for everyone. So would really encourage you to do that. And as a gentle reminder, right, for those of us who are covenant members and have kind of taken this, this pledge, this commitment to be a part of this community, um, what you won't find in the Member Covenant is, hey, you should attend a specific event for this or that. But what you will find in the Member Covenant is an agreement to hold each other accountable to godly parenting. Um, so that includes parents, that includes non-parents. We're all kind of involved in this process. So we really encourage you to sign up for that. And there'll be check for lunch. Um, John 6, 22 through 71. Um, if you were uh, to listen any, to almost any other sermon that I preached, you would know that I love to work downtown. I usually start a sermon uh, sometimes with something like ridiculous that happened when I was down there, something I saw, something I did. Um, and part of that's just because I like to work downtown. I like to do sermon prep downtown. I kind of like the, the hustle and bustle, um, the food, the, the scene, um, the people running around. Uh, it really kind of like strokes stroke my creativity. And uh, I often also pray for the Lord to kind of let me experience or see the passage that I'm preaching in a unique way. And yes, a few weeks ago I preached about Jesus asking a man if he wanted to be healed, and that week I broke my arm. So, you know. But anyways, I, I pray over the passage, and, and I ask the Lord to kind of reveal something to me. And not that I can't do that at home or at the office, but for me there's just a difference when I'm in the busyness of life. And I see people like enjoying food, enjoying drink, or going to work, or traveling, or socializing, and I see, see sad things too, difficult things as well. Um, it's just kind of a beautiful mixture of life happening. But all of that is to actually say, I have not been downtown in a very long time to work. It is partially because, yes, I broke my arm, but that's not the actual thing preventing me from going downtown. The actual thing preventing me from going downtown is the fact that I have to use voice dictation for everything. <laughs> everything. Right, and it's maddening. Right? Can you and just imagine? Right, uh, I'm sitting there in a coffee shop, full of people. Maybe it's quiet. Other people are working. Right, this is during the week, and I am just typing an email using my voice. <laughs> hey, John, comma, enter, enter. Thanks for checking out City on a Hill. Delete, delete, City on a Hill. Delete, delete. No, City on a Hill. Right? Can you just imagine that? On top of this, this this voice dictation. Is absolutely terrible. Right? I, I've heard from other people, maybe there's different softwares I can get, but the, the one that's built into the computer, like I, I am the type of person that over exaggerates all the time, but right now I'm not over exaggerating. Every single sentence there, it, it puts in the wrong word or puts in the wrong, uh, just something is wrong. 
Right, so that makes like things like preparing for a sermon absolutely maddening. Because I just want to kind of get going and start talking and for it to record what I'm saying and I can go back and edit later. But when it like half of the sentence is wrong, I have to stop on the spot and kind of like correct things. This is going to be a thing we're going to have to deal with today, I'm sorry. Right, and so this, this, this software program just greatly misunderstands me. And, and honestly, like in my weakest moments, I could literally curl up in a ball and cry because the past three weeks I have just felt so misunderstood by this software. <laughs> On a serious note, right, with some of the work I do, it's really important to communicate clearly. Whether it's crafting a careful email or sending an important Slack or text message or sermon writing, right? And this extends far beyond just like ministry, right? You understand this with probably your own job your own things that you do, right? How difficult it would be if you couldn't communicate clearly. Right, clear understanding is extremely important and misunderstanding is extremely destructive. If you've been married for five seconds, you know this to be true. If you walk through deep relational rifts with a coworker or a close friend, like you know this to be true. And let me just say, if it's extremely important that we communicate clearly with our day jobs and our families and kind of everything else we have going on in life, how important is it that we clearly communicate and understand the God of the universe that we say we believe in? It's kind of comical. Like, if you read through the Bible, this is humanity's great problem is sin, but it roots itself in not clearly understanding, not listening to God. Right? All over Scripture. It's just... People misunderstanding God over and over and over and over again. Thankfully, God is the final say. Well, we've seen this in our, our, our gospel, the Gospel of John already, a couple of times. It's very, very hard to pick up on, but they're actually quite funny. My favorite one's Nicodemus, chapter 3, if you remember him. Jesus says, Nicodemus, uh, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does this dude do? He responds, and he's like, I'm going to get back in my mother's womb, I guess. Like, what? That's clearly a misunderstanding. Or the woman at the well. Right, the very next chapter, John chapter 4. These, these misunderstandings, they're so small, but they're so important. Right, Jesus tells this woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come back to the stinking well in the heat of the day again. Just like Nicodemus, she doesn't get it. Not at first, anyways. It seems later on she does. Right? People have continued to misunderstand not just what Jesus teaches, but who he is and why he does what he does. The passage just before ours, if you were here last week, we heard about Jesus feeding 5,000 people, which is more like 10 to 15,000 people, with five loaves of bread and two fish. Then after that, he proceeds to walk on water. A pretty casual day for Jesus, if I say so myself. In our passage, it picks up on this the next day. The very next day, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And uh, we see um, in our passage going, Jesus going to great lengths to try and help people to understand. Jesus going to great lengths to communicate something extremely important, extremely clearly. Our reading was only 13 verses, but we're actually covering the rest of the chapter today, which is about 50 verses, so it's, it's a big hunk. It's a, it's a lot of stuff to work through. Um, and it's Jesus' longest teaching in the Gospel of John so far, but arguably, is the most important. 
because he says with crystal clarity that believing what he's teaching is not a matter of knowing things or intellectual gain or just living a wiser and better life in light of what this rabbi is teaching. It's a matter of life and death. When you look at what he's teaching, he's teaching about himself. When it comes to the person of Jesus, what he teaches is that what you believe, what you know, what you understand when it comes to this Jesus is a matter of life and death. He doesn't want us to get this wrong. He desperately doesn't want you to misunderstand who he is. And so our main point for today is this. It's just simply this. Understanding and believing Jesus is a matter of life and death. Understanding and believing Jesus is a matter of life and death. So three things. Three things we look at our passage he wants us to understand. This is what we're going to talk about. He wants us to understand our motivations or our motives. He wants us to understand who he is, who Jesus is. And he wants us to understand what he gives. Our motivations, who Jesus is, and what he gives. So first, Jesus wants us to understand our motivations. This has sort of been a sub-theme. Right, or something that is a little bit under the radar so far in the Gospel of John. But in an almost sneaky way, uh, uh, John talks a lot about people's motivations and expectations. Whether it's Nicodemus, again, coming, by Jesus, coming to Jesus by way of night. Our motivation is to kind of conceal himself to other people. Or the woman at the well, kind of going in the middle of the day to avoid interacting with other people. Right, John was concerned with explaining why they were doing what they were doing. In our passage, this point gets the least amount of ink. It's kind of at the front end of the passage, but it's really important for us. Right, the crowd that remained from yesterday, they got into their boats, they go to the other side of the sea, and they're looking for Jesus, and immediately, Jesus sees right through them. Like, I kind of love how Jesus just cuts straight to the point. They're like, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he responds, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me because you saw signs. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, their motivations are off. But they're approaching Jesus for what they think they can get out of him. Their, their, their motivation, their motives are intrinsically selfish. And that's something Jesus really cares about. Right? God cares greatly about what we do, yes, but he also cares equally about why we do it. A cursory read of the Gospels, we see Jesus calling people out for this all the time. One example, Matthew 23, he says this to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In another version, he says, you blind Pharisee. For you clean the outside of the cup, and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Sometimes it's obvious, like in our passage, they're seeking Jesus, which you and I would say is a good thing to do. But it's because they want something. But sometimes in our lives it's not so obvious, right? We can do godly things for the wrong reason. So often we only consider what we do, not why we do it. And if you look at this, this little scripture from the Gospel of Matthew closely, you'll see that if the outside appears clean, but the inside, our motives, our motivations, why we do what we do, if they're unclean, then the outside isn't really clean. In other words, if you're doing godly things for the wrong reasons, you aren't doing godly things. 
Again, in our passage, seeking Jesus on the surface is a very good thing to do. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew why they were doing what they were doing. Right, we see a story like that in a crowd full of people and think they're silly for focusing on the bread. Like, why are they so focused on the bread? If only they knew who it truly was who stood in front of them. But that kind of mentality is much more common than know. To focus on the blessings and not the blesser. I've come across more than one person. They're new to our church. How do you find us? Why are you here? Like, what's your story? And they start to list things they want from God. Whether it's getting into a certain program or funding or a job a spouse even. Right, and these are, are good things to pray about. Right, they're good things to ask God for. But when we ask for the blessings of God and miss God himself, we're missing out on the true blessing. A.W. Tozer said, an evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. The evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In other words, when we seek God for what he can give us, more than for who he is, we'll miss him. We'll miss the mark. We'll miss the thing we truly want. Behind the things we think we want is God. We think that the, the crowd is foolish for focusing on and seeking Jesus for nothing more than physical bread. And yet in our own lives, we have the same disposition. We just don't know it. We just think we're different because we have to live a Christian and we assume the people in the crowd don't. But here's the thing. Here's the good news. Here's the goodness of God that we see. Jesus, he doesn't tell these people just to leave because their motivations are off. No, what does he do? He says this. He says, I have something far greater for you. And I want to tell you about it. People think the greatest blessing they could receive in that moment is bread. But when Jesus is saying they're failing to realize that the greatest blessing they can receive is God himself. Right? They fail to realize what we've been saying for weeks now, that the miracle is meant to point to a miracle worker. Right? They point to something, someone greater. They point to God and who he is. And who is he? The second thing Jesus wants us to understand in our passage The whole Gospel of John essentially answers this question. Who is Jesus? Right, the whole book, the I Am statements, one of which we cover today. The miracles, the signs, the teachings, they all answer this kind of huge question. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person? Remember John 20, uh, John's whole purpose statement? But these are written so that you may believe that, that this gospel, these signs, these miracles, these teachings of Jesus are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, Jesus is doing these things so that we can understand who he is. If you've been coming for even just two weeks, you've heard this so many times already. Like y'all, man, we're hearing about like another point where we talk about who Jesus is. That's the whole point of the Bible. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. That's the whole point of our existence, is to know who Jesus is and glorify him. The Gospel, and by extension, the person of Jesus, has often been described as a diamond. I don't know if anyone's 
heard of that kind of verbiage and phrasing and usage before. Not, not, yes, it is sparkly and shiny, but not because it's sparkly and shiny, but because it has many facets. And as you turn and, and look at each facet, and you see the way the light reflects on it, you see the way it's, it's carved individually, it has a unique shape, you see different facets of this diamond. But it's one whole diamond. The Gospel of John, maybe more than any other Gospel, has the most facets. And this little tiny facet that we're looking at today, Jesus presents himself as the bread of life. Multiple times. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is repeating this phrase over and over again because it's extremely important. Now what does this mean? In our passage, I, point, I think it points to three things. It points to the fact that Jesus is God. It points to the fact that Jesus provides eternal satisfaction. And it points to the fact that Jesus provides eternal security. It points to the fact that Jesus is God. It points to the fact that Jesus provides eternal satisfaction and he provides eternal security. Here's what I mean by all that. First, Jesus is God. We talked about the I am phrase last week a little bit. In Greek, it's ego eimi. And Jesus uses this phrase several times throughout the Gospel of John. And it means so much more than what appears on the surface. In right, the Old Testament, God identifies himself using that phrase. Right, Moses, who was a leader of the Israelites, a leader of God's people, and a key historical figure, he uh, communicates with God and kind of asks them this question. He says, who are you? What's your name? And God responds and says, I am, I am. I am who I am. And now Jesus comes on the scene. In a very similar scenario. A very similar kind of, uh, 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 very similar to Moses in some ways. And now he's using that phrase. He's making a claim. He's not just saying, I am like God. He's not just saying, I can understand God. He's not just saying, I can communicate with God. He's not just saying, I came from God. He's saying, I am God. Right? The God that created everything you can see and can't see. The God who upholds the universe. And furthermore, the God that loves you and cares for you. I am that God. And just as the God of the Old Testament, if you've heard this story, provided manna, provided bread in the wilderness, so now Jesus provides bread to you. But the bread he gives is something greater, something more desirable. It's something far different, a different type of bread. This isn't the jump from, like, wonder bread to sourdough bread, right? This is something entirely different. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the word he uses for life is zoe in the Greek. And there are two Greek words used for life in the New Testament. Bios, which means physical life, we get the word biology. And zoe, which we get the word, just kidding, we don't get any English words. <laughs> I preached at Forest Hills before this, and they responded saying zoology. <laughs> no. That's what I could have called zoology. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the word zoe, it means a full life, a spiritual life, a joy-filled life, 
the Old Testament book of Isaiah paints a picture of this a little bit, and it's a picture of a well-watered, lush, and thriving garden. That's what Zoe is. And so Jesus is not talking about physical sustenance, though he provides that, but rather spiritual, eternal sustenance, spiritual, eternal satisfaction, spiritual and eternal fulfillment. And the crowds, they don't seem to understand this. They can't get physical bread out of their mind. And to their credit, like I'm sure Jesus makes some dope bread, you know, but they can't move beyond the blessing. They can't move beyond the miracle itself. They can't move beyond the sign. They can't move beyond the gift. Right, there's a miracle behind every miracle. If you kind of track in the book of John, this is a total side note, uh, oftentimes he has a formula. Jesus will perform a miracle, and then he'll teach about it. In our case, it's really clear. He makes bread out of thin air, and then he talks about how he's the bread of life. There's a miracle behind the miracle, and it's what Jesus teaches in these moments. There's something behind Jesus providing bread, and it is this, that Jesus is the bread of life. Modern translation. Your deepest need, your deepest desire and longing are fulfilled in Christ. The bread of life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He can only say this if he is all you could ever need and want. If it's true, he can only say this because he is all you could ever need and want. Now, some of us in the room immediately feel a conflict or immediately hurt by a statement like that, right? Like, we like the idea of this being true, but there's no escaping the fact that reality, your life, is right in front of you. You're like, I'm still following Jesus, but man, I have a lot of unanswered prayers, a lot of desires and longings that aren't fulfilled. Like, Jesus, I, how can you say you're the bread of life that I still don't have fill in the blank? Yet I'm still struggling with fill in the blank. Yet my loved one still doesn't have whatever it may be. And I'm broken in so many places. Jesus, how could you say this? How can this be? Friends, there's a lot of work it's a hard process. It's a long journey that you won't arrive at in this lifetime. But to prayerfully get to the point where you can step back and say all of this, all the things I have, my job, my family, finances, the physical life in front of me is not as valuable as never-ending life with God. That's what Jesus is promising. Here's the thing, the things you find your happiness now, that happiness in now, which it's okay to find happiness in other things, it's okay for other things to make you happy, but the things you find happiness in now will cease to exist in some way, shape, or form, whether it's marriage or your work. But God won't. If you're in Christ, the relationship, the zoe, the life that you have with God does not cease to exist. It only gets more real. It only gets better. 
until at some point in time you're face to face with him. That is where Jesus puts value. That is where Jesus says he is the zoe, the bread of life. That's ultimately what Jesus purchases on the cross. Right? His perfect life, death, and resurrection. He gives us zoe. Like you might be in constant wonder and worry about certain things in life, on, 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 uh, certain things in your life here on earth. But you never have to be in constant wonder and worry about whether you will spend eternity with God if you're in Christ. And when you have the latter, the former starts to seem smaller and smaller. The thing that Jesus offers us is far greater than anything we could have, one or need. So Jesus being the bread of life means that he is God. It means that he provides eternal satisfaction. And lastly, it means that he provides eternal security. Look at a few of these verses with me. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of God that Jesus will lose nothing of all that God has given him. Let's talk about us, if you're in Christ. But raise it up on the last day. In other words, you don't have to worry. God's got you. In Christ, your eternal security is subject to nothing. Right, it's not like the stock market. Things are trending upward, but you know, a bad day's coming. The outlook's pretty negative. No, in Scripture, we affirms this all over. This idea that those who belong to God, those who are in Christ, are eternally secure. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Are there things in your life that you're doing right now that you have done, or that you will do, that could ever separate you from Jesus Christ? No, Paul says. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God himself says, in Christ nothing can take you away from me. Now, how do we get all this? Because some of us in the room haven't experienced this. We haven't experienced this. We'll close with this. There's no way around it. Scripture draws a really clear line. Right down the middle. There are people that are currently in this relationship with Jesus and people that are not. There are people that are currently, in an imperfect way, experiencing this zoe people that are not. There's no middle ground. How do we get this? Well, Jesus spells it out pretty easily. He tells us to believe, and then he tells us how to believe. Verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. He says multiple times throughout the passage that whoever believes has this life. Now, we're all kind of tracking so far. 
The crowd's tracking with a statement like that. Like, there might be some disagreements and there might be some offenses because Jesus called himself this little phrase called the Son of Man, but that's a longer story. Uh, but they're like kind of like on board with this idea that there is a Messiah, there is a Savior, there is someone coming that will save us. This idea of eternal life, it, that, that's not new to them. It's somewhat expected. To believe in Christ might not be too unexpected. What does that mean? This is where it gets difficult. Jesus said to them in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, understanding, believing, and uh, just understanding and believing the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, partaking in his broken body and his spilled blood for you. Jesus is saying, unless you do these things and believe in these things, unless you see, perceive, and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, then you will lack a joyful relationship with God. You will lack eternal life with God. The psalm says your sorrows will multiply as you chase after other things. And the scriptures are clear. Alongside eternal life with God is eternal life without God. And Jesus is the difference between these two things. And so if you're here, if you don't believe this, two things I want to say. First, this is a great place to come if you don't believe this. It's a safe space to work things out, to think through things, to talk with other people. We encourage you to talk to any of the leaders across our church. We'd be happy to talk to you about the questions you have or point you in the right direction. But the second thing I would say is I would want to challenge you a little bit. The person that doesn't believe and the person that's struggling with belief. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor, says this. The honest truth is this. Nobody is kept back from Christ as a result of a lack of evidence. The problem is not intellectual, the problem is moral. It is an issue of the human heart. And I think he's right. Our crowd in the passage had all the evidence in the world. They just saw the dude make bread out of thin air. Some of them maybe witnessed Jesus walking on water. And yet they still turned and walked away. You can get objectively honest with yourself and ask, what is it that's keeping you from belief in Jesus? I think you'll find it's something in your heart rather than your head. Good news, this passage is filled with like a little bit of doom and gloom sometimes. Like there's the, the greatness of like eternal life, but also there's the reality of what happens to those who don't believe. But it ends on a bright note. In the, the passage, Jesus, uh, he, he throws up this phrase that we just read, that you, you must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And it says, it, it, it says the crowd doesn't leave him. It says what? That many of his disciples left him. And so there are actually disciples that are following Jesus that are not following Jesus for the right reasons, that are not truly Jesus' disciples. They say, after he says that you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, this is a hard thing. This is a really hard thing. And so they leave. 
And Jesus turns to the twelve, the twelve disciples, and he asks them this question. Do you take offense to this as well? Are you offended by this too? Do you want to leave as well? Simon Peter answered him. Of course, Peter's only answers him too. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? It's one of those beautiful words in Scripture, I think, spoken by a human. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. As much as Peter can grasp, which is not fully, by the way, right? Peter has not at this point witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection. This is still early on in some of Jesus' teachings. But as much as Peter can grasp, he understands, he understands that this understanding and believing in Jesus is a matter of life and death. There's nowhere else to go. It's only him. And so the fact of the matter in front of us is this. Through the scriptures, through just our small passage today, Jesus has made himself abundantly clear. Who he is. Stand and believe in Jesus is, it is a matter of life and death. Let's pray. God, I praise you that we aren't left to wonder what it means to have a full life. That we aren't left to wonder what it means to be in relationship with you. We aren't left to wonder what eternal life looks like. We just have to look to you, Jesus. You are the solution. You are the answer. God, help us to do that today. Help us to do that every day. May we pray nice these things. Amen.